Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Space Nuts. Hello again. Thank you for joining us on the podcast known as Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and joining me uh, every week is astronomer Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you going? I am well. Good to see you. In fact, we have a funny story. A couple of weeks ago, you had to come to Dubbo to be a guest speaker for the National Science Challenge with high school students. And because of the timing and the placement of things, uh, you know, we were only a kilometre or two apart, but we couldn't see each other for a cup of coffee or whatever. Last week, I had to be in Sydney. I walked past your office, <laughs> but no one was home. <laughs> That's two no, that near was... misses. <laughs> we're like, well, we're like yeah. exo asteroids, Fred. <clears throat> That's right. Um, w- one day, space and time will come together and we'll have a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Uh, now, today, we're going to talk about uh, some clues in the search for the origin of life, uh, which uh, is a pretty complicated story, but fascinating too, because it, it could actually mean some pretty exciting things are happening out there. Uh, if if all holds true. Uh, we're also going to look at uh, the discovery of a giant world, but they're not sure if it's a planet or a star. Well, that's confusing. <laughs> and we've had a question from Andrew Mitchell about um, photons, uh, which we're going to get to a little later. Thank you, Andrew. First up, though, Fred, uh, the search for the origins of life. This, this is the ongoing um, search and, and battle for the truth. Uh, and, and now they've come across something that might just suggest there's more life out there than we originally could have considered. Uh, that's absolutely right, Andrew. It's, um, I think we live in a really exciting time in terms of our understanding of how life originated on this planet. And of course, anything we discover about that has implications for the astronomical world, for the possibility of life elsewhere. So there are two competing theories about where life kicked off on Earth. They both require there to have been a a sort of, you know, a reservoir of what we call prebiotic molecules, uh, molecules containing carbon, the kind of things that eventually go together to make RNA and later DNA. Uh, So the two theories are that either life originated in Um, what is sometimes called warm ponds, but by that I guess you mean places where there is hydrothermal activity on the earth. And there are a number of places, and I've visited some of them, where, you know, there are things like geysers and... Black um, smokers or whatever they're called? Well, black smokers are the the other theory. Ah. Uh, These are the, 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 the sort of warm pond theory says that this was on the surface of the earth. It was on the land. Right. That where there's uh, hydrothermal activity, the kind of things that you know are going on in uh, uh, in New Zealand. Uh, you've got geysers and and these yep. uh, you know um, various uh, ver- various forms of geothermal activity. Uh, that they were rich in chemicals. They provided heat, and that that's where life might have triggered. And in fact, there's 
been some work recently done in a place called El Tatio, which is the highest geyser field in the world. I've visited there. It's in um, in uh, uh, South America, mm. actually, uh, in far, um, far northern Chile, the, in the Atacama. Yeah, I've, um, I've seen the geysers, uh, or one of the significant geysers in Rotorua it, in New Zealand. It's just yeah. staggering the way yes, it all the, works. That's right, they are. And the yeah. heat, the heat that comes off the, the ground there, or out of the ground there, just mesmerising. <laughs> So, so that's theory number one, that that was the kickoff for life. The Altatio one, by the way, there's, um, there are structures there called opaline silicates, which uh, are thought to have been laid down by ancient organisms. And tantalizingly, similar things have been seen on Mars by um, the Curiosity. Actually, it might not be the Curiosity. I think it might be Opportunity mm -hmm. uh, that found these uh, rover on Mars. Anyway, um, we're not talking about that today. <laughs> so you can forget all that uh, because um, the, the other theory is, as you mentioned, the black smokers, the, the hydrothermal vents, which are deep down in the ocean. And it's the same thing uh, you know, the same mechanism. It's, it's water seeping down uh, into the Earth's crust and being heated and then pr pr projected back up again. That's how geysers work. And it's also how uh, black smokers work, uh, the hydrothermal vents, the difference being one's on land and one's under the ocean. So one of those is thought to have been where life kicked off. And ah. um, the, the reason why we're talking about this today is that there's been some research done on modeling the kind of chemical effects of black smokers uh, underneath the ocean, the hydrothermal vents, which suggests that actually some of these prebiotic molecules are much easier to form in the vicinity of these things. And in particular, if you assume um, that you don't just have one vent uh, that's spewing out stuff, but that you've got several um, and they're interconnected. They, they've suggested the existence of what they call long and networked pores um, through the, uh, within the crust of the earth. And it turns out that that actually allows these what are called extended polymers. They're, they're molecules that really lend themselves to the uh, emergence of RNA. Uh, so if you, if you have a lot of different pores emitting the hydrothermal vents, okay, you could call them pores, perhaps hydrotherm, uh, interconnected hydrothermal vents might be a better way to putting it. Uh, but when, when you look at the theory behind these things, if they're spread over a large area, what you get, and this is the crucial thing, you'll get, you get variations in the temperature um, the temperature in one of these vents will be different from the one of the neighboring ones. And it's that variation in temperature that gives you the possibility of forming these complex molecules. If you've got too high a temperature, um, what happens is that the, you know, the, the various catalysts and the molecules themselves are actually broken up before anything's happened. Hmm. And if the temperature's too cold, nothing happens at all anyway. Hello, and this so is starting it, to sound like a nursery rhyme again. <laughs> Much of um, astrobiology sounds like a nursery rhyme, aren't you? <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, the bottom line is that um, the, these conditions, are, uh, they suggest are, are actually, uh, you know, with the interconnected pores, they're, they're better uh, fulfilled by the undersea hydrothermal vents than by the warm ponds, the little crater lakes and things of that sort. Right. And so what they're suggesting is that 
um, uh, where there are hydrothermal vents, and particularly interconnected ones, you know, a complex set of these things on the ocean floor, then you've got the perfect conditions for these uh, complex molecules to form and possibly to trigger off the emergence of life. And that's, uh, uh, the, you know, that is the, the, the big step because they then realize that hydrothermal vents may actually be quite common throughout uh, the universe. And in fact, quite common even in our solar system. We know pretty um, certainly that the under ice ocean of Saturn's moon Enceladus mm. actually has uh, on the ocean floor, it's buried under a layer of ice before you get to the ocean, but the ocean itself sits on a, on a rocky floor, exactly as the Earth's ocean does. And there are almost certainly hydrothermal vents there because we've seen the evidence for that in the plumes of ice crystals uh, that spew out of uh, Enceladus's South Pole. They've been measured by the Cassini spacecraft. Yes. So um, it, it's uh, very intriguing that the, you know, we, we've basically got just a couple of clues here that maybe, well, first of all, maybe hydrothermal vents are commonplace, but also maybe the chemical reactions that lead to life might be commonplace as well, which is why this is quite an exciting piece of research. So that five-hour explanation you just gave us, yes. basically <laughs> the, simpl the simplified version is we think there's a lot of these things, therefore there's probably a lot of potential for life in the universe. That's correct. And I forgot to mention uh, something that's a rather a quirky aspect of this story. Uh, one of the things that's probably familiar to people because it's used as, or it used to be used as hair bleach, hydrogen peroxide is uh, one that is a crucial catalyst in some of these reactions. And, and that sort of pops out of the modeling that they do for this this kind of thing. Mm. Oh, we need to get that submarine up to our Enceladus, uh, Enceladus very, very soon. I think it's down to you and me, Andrew. We, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, pedal powered. Pedal powered would be the way right. to go. Yeah, yeah um, I think they did that with the first submarines, but uh, yeah, it is exciting <laughs> because uh, it, it it really does mean the search can um, be honed in on on some specifics. And once you once you get that, uh, you know where to look and you know what to look for. You your chances of in, of finding some life are significantly increased. I would think. Indeed, that's right. So, so um, the, uh, I forgot to mention this research was carried out at the ANU and also at um, the University of Leeds in the UK. And the researchers say that, yes, we've been following the, the mantra, follow the water for looking for the origin of life. But they suggest that we should also include the mantra, follow the temperature fluctuations, because it's, it's those things that might lead to these molecules being formed. Well, we, we know on Earth that uh, critters do live uh, near those black smokers. Uh, Absolutely. Life, life yeah. has adapted. That's right. Uh, That's so right. It, it's not beyond the realms of probability by the sound of it. Hmm. Very exciting stuff, Fred. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is 
second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Next up, Fred, we're going to look at a planet. Or is it a planet? Could be a star. Could be a star that thinks it's a planet. Could be a planet that wants to be a star but can't get a break in Hollywood. We are not sure. So uh, what, is, what is this story about? And I'm guessing it's as complicated as what we were just talking about. Uh, I, yeah, well, yes. It, it's, um, it's another interesting story. It relates to things that we can probably all get our heads around uh, in terms of the objects that we find out there in the universe. So for many years, probably 30 years now, we've known of the existence of a species of star which... You might call them failed stars. They're called brown dwarfs. Ah, yes. Uh, and they are they, they were predicted theoretically, actually, before they were observed. And um, some of my colleagues uh, in the uh, what was then the Anglo-Australian Observatory were very interested in these objects and actually did a lot of research on them. So brown dwarfs are objects that have not got to the temperature required for what we call the fusion of hydrogen um, and that's what makes the sun work when you when you let, let's just do planet form uh, sorry star formation 101 you start off with a cloud of hydrogen often mixed with dust and the dust is what makes eventually makes the planet um, the cloud of hydrogen collapses under its own gravity the heat caused by that collapse it's like you know when you pump up a bicycle tire uh, the pressure goes up and the temperature goes up. Likewise, at the centre of this collapsing cloud of gas, the pressure gets very high. The temperature gets to something like 10 million degrees, and that allows you to trigger uh, the nuclear processes, the, the nuclear, actually what's called nu nuclear fusion, which is when hydrogen uh, turns into helium. And that releases the energy uh, which actually balances the gravity and causes the star, um, you know, to, to, to become a stable thing like the sun is now. Yeah. Okay, that's a normal star. If you don't have enough hydrogen, you still get the collapse, but the temperature never gets high enough to, uh, to, to, to go through this normal nuclear burning process. 
but there is a sort of intermediate stage, and that is something called deuterium burning. Uh, deuterium is an isotope of hydrogen, and it actually reacts in a different way from the way a normal star reacts, but it does generate a bit of heat. And in fact, it generates enough heat to form one of these brown dwarf objects. Mm -hmm. So typically, they are 40 to 50 times the mass of Jupiter. That will be the typical mass of a brown dwarf star. Okay. Uh, and the sun is, you know, many thousands of times the mass of Jupiter. So you can see it sits in that lower mass range. Uh, but there is a cutoff defined. Um, anything that is smaller than 13 times the mass of Jupiter cannot have enough gravity to cause deuterium burning. And so that is not a brown dwarf. It's a big planet. So something less than 13 times the mass of Jupiter is a planet. It doesn't have this it, it actually does have internal heat sources, but they're not caused by deuterium burning. And so they don't get to glow in the infrared region of the spectrum, the, the heat region of the spectrum, which is how we detect brown dwarf stars. So, so I'm guessing we've found one of these? We've found one whose mass is, guess what? 13 times the mass of Jupiter. So it's right on the limit. On the cusp. Um, on the cusp, yeah, the, the, the boundary that says... On one side of that boundary, it's a planet. On the other side, it's a star. And so this thing sits right on that boundary. Um, it's a, a, an object that was discovered in an interesting way by a project called OGLE, O-G-L-E, which is an acronym, of course, for Optical Gravitational Lensing Experiment. It's a, a Polish project, but actually has... It's a pretty good name. They've got, it's a great they've done one, well yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're ogling the... Mm. ogling the universe. You'll notice, Andrew, that in that acronym, the OGLE acronym, uh, the words gravitational lensing are included. And that refers to the idea that a planet or a star which has mass, uh, like everything that has mass, it distorts the space around it. Uh, the Earth does that, and it's actually that distortion that we feel is the pull of gravity. But in this case, what's happened is that this planet has acted like a gravitational lens. It's bent the light uh, from a more distant object around it. But the distant object is actually the star which this object is, is orbiting around. I know this is a complex and difficult thing to, exp uh, to explain without diagrams, but what you've got is a star. You've got its planet which passes in front of it. And mm -hmm. paradoxically, instead of blocking out the light from the star, it actually magnifies the star because it's big enough to act as a gravitational lens. And that's what the Ogle astronomers see. They see a peak in the brightness of the star as a planet passes in front of it. Um, so that uh, is how this object has been discovered. And what it means is that they know more about this thing than we normally would with Ogle objects. Often the planet passes in front of a distant star and you never see it again. But this particular one um, is in orbit around its parent star and they think it's got an orbit of around three years. So in 2019, they're hoping to get another look at this thing and maybe find out a bit more about where it sits on the, uh, you know, on the scale of planethood or starhood. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. So it, it could be a binary star system or it could be a planet orbiting a star and it's just a mega massive planet. That's correct. That's right. Mm. Um, the, one, of the, one of the things that's kind of even more intriguing about this is... Uh, that if all the calculations are correct, this thing sits 
something like, uh, if I remember rightly, I read these figures earlier, something like um, twice the distance of this, our, our Earth from the sun um, in, in its orbit around, around its planet. Uh, and if it's a brown dwarf, that's very unusual because this has never been seen before. Um, and it's thought to be all about the way brown dwarfs form. So that tends to push you towards the view that this is actually a planet, not a brown dwarf. Yeah, I, I, I'm wondering what it would be like uh, to stand on. Uh, it, it, obviously, it would be pretty hostile by the sound of it. Uh, well, it, it's more like, um, you know, you, I guess what you've got to imagine is what, what would happen if you were trying to stand on Jupiter? Jupiter's a gas yeah, well, giant, can't so do that. Yeah. solid yeah. surface. Mm. Um, and brown dwarfs are, are, are just like giant Jupiters, but they're hotter. They, they release more energy because of this deuterium burning process. Sounds it's complicated nasty. stuff, but it's, yeah, it is nasty. Uh, but um, one, of the, one of the other things that clouds the boundary between brown dwarfs and planets is that brown dwarfs have weather. They actually have weather in their, in their atmospheres. And um, I've uh, even read um, papers that suggest that actually the weather is such that you get showers of rain, but the rain is not water, it's liquid iron droplets. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. BHP would be thrilled. Yeah, well, you, it, it'd probably give you know, a whole new idea to what kind of things you might make umbrellas out of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, yeah I don't think anything would last long under one of those. Yeah. Exactly. That's fascinating. All right, so we've got to wait a couple of years before we can find out. Uh, at this stage, the jury is out but leaning towards planet. I think that's right. Mm, all right. <clears throat> we'll know more in a couple of years and we'll be here to tell you about it. Theoretically, (laughs) (laughs) you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Last but not least, Fred, uh, we have a question from one of our um, four listeners, Uh, Andrew Mitchell. You and I are included in that statistic. Yes, I thought we might be. I think it was pretty optimistic. (laughs) Uh, I was just watching a YouTube video which mentioned the recent publication about that newly discovered 13 billion year old galaxy and a question occurred to me. It's about redshift. So, say a very distant sun emits a photon at the blue end of the spectrum. On its way to us over billions of years, it gets stretched and we see it as a red photon. Now, the red photon has less energy than it had when it was a blue photon. What happened to the energy of that photon, Andrew asks? It's a very good question. Actually, that's a, a very well-posed and uh, absolutely, um, you know, right smack on the money question. Well, maybe because... for my benefit, we should start by explaining... I was going to do that. <laughs> I not, thought you would. Not so much for your benefit as for the benefit of me and all the other listeners who've got to get their heads around this sort of mm. thing. Um, so it's, but it's, it's absolutely right. What, um, what is said there is perfectly true. Uh, you have um, a universe that is expanding. We have radiation going through it. It's not, not just light. There's X-rays, gamma rays, radio waves, lots and lots of things going through this radiation. But uh, the, the bottom line is that if, if, um, if light or whatever it is travels long enough through the universe, the expansion of the universe itself stretches the light waves or radio waves or whatever they are. And the term we use for that is redshift. Um, it's, it's the reddening of light 
caused by the expansion of the universe, um, but it also applies to other radiations. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you, there are two ways of looking at light. In fact, uh, pretty well all electromagnetic radiation. You can either think of it as, uh, as waves, uh, waves traveling through a, me a medium, which actually isn't there, but <laughs> waves traveling through space. Um, or you can think of it as particles, particles of light. We call them photons. Um, and in fact, both are correct. That's one of the peculiarities of quantum mechanics, that in quantum theory, things can be either waves or particles. But the bottom line is that as the universe expands, it doesn't matter whether you think of them as waves or photons, uh, they they basically get longer, the wavelength gets longer, photons themselves have a defined energy which is related to the wavelength of the of the wave. The, the, the universe expands, so the light is reddened, which means that the photons have lost energy because blue photons have more energy than red photons. That's the crucial part of this. Um, so uh, what, what the expansion of the universe does not do is slow down the photons. Uh, through space, everything travels at 300,000 kilometers per second, the speed of light. Mm -hmm. uh, but the expanding universe takes away energy from the photons. So it turns a red one, uh, sorry, a blue one into a red one, a high energy photon into a lower energy. Um, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, I can see that you are nodding uh, as I'm saying this, which means... That's that me maybe, pretending to understand. <laughs> maybe I'm... I'm saying things that people can understand. So the question, exactly right, what happens to the energy that they lose? Yep. And it's uh, kind of hinted at it already. It basically goes into the expansion of the universe. The, as the universe expands, uh, it's, it's drawing energy from everything that's traveling through it. Ah. Uh, and that is actually another way of looking at it. The expanding universe is drawing energy out uh, into its own sort of reservoir of an expanding space. Um, and the, the effect of that is to redden the photons, to take these blue photons and turn them into red light. Simple as that. Mm. It is, yeah. It's, um, but it's a great question, and it's one that um, does demand a little bit of thought. Uh, you can sort of, it's probably easier to think of it the other way around. If, you were, if we're in a contracting universe, that's sort the of analogous. Would happen? Well, yes, that's right. The, the, the photons will be would get more energy, so they'd be blue shifted. And what what then you will be seeing is the the work that's going into contracting the universe is actually being you know translated into the energy of the photons. It's very much akin to a, an analogy we've already used in this in this segment, uh, which is a bicycle pump. Because if you um, you know pump a bicycle up, you you're compressing the the gas in it, and that gas is is increasing in temperature. It's it's getting a higher energy. It's a very similar analogy. Okay. It does prompt a question in my mind, though, about the expansion of the universe. Uh, if, if it's drawing energy from photons, is that what's continuing to power the expansion, or is the expansion still a, uh, the aftermath of the Big Bang? I mean, surely well, something as big as the universe can't be continuing uh, to use one energy source. Um, but in a sense, it is, because right. the, uh, you know, the, the Big Bang itself... Um, was an enormous release of energy, most of which in the early stages was in the form of radiation, so it was photons. Uh, so, you know, that is what kicked off the expansion of the universe. There's something else weird that happened, which we call inflation, a very rapid expansion uh, in the first, you know, few tiny instants of the universe. That's where the that, bike pump came in. 
that's right. That seems to be seems to be something to do with gravitational, actually, more than radiation. But yes, it's uh, radiation is certainly one of the contributors to the expansion of the universe. Okay, very, a very good question, Andrew. If I may say so, I do come up with uh, one every couple of years, apparently. <laughs> All right, Fred, thank you as always, and thanks to Andrew Mitchell for firing off that question to us. We do have a few questions we probably need to get to at some stage, but we'll work our way through them. Uh, thank you, Fred. Great pleasure, Andrew. Always good to talk to you and especially to get these listener questions. Indeed. And uh, that's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Joins us every week on Space Nuts. And thank you for joining us every week as well. And keep those cards and letters coming in or Facebook questions or whatever whatever you like. We, we love to hear from you, even if you just have a remark to make or some people send us links to things. We got uh, a, a link to a story about Leica the other day, Fred, so uh, I'll send that to you. Oh, and, uh, and whatever else. Um, yeah, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're online uh, and we're uh, at your disposal sometimes if you do want to uh, ask a a tricky little question, don't ask me. Uh, But you can uh, join us again every week and we'll catch you again next week here on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.